I'd like to invite you to uh, take a Pew Bible out in front of you, or you can follow along on an app on your phone if you have your bulletin with you. Uh, Actually, you don't have that on this service, so never mind that. Get a Bible. As we follow along, as we look more in depth of Luke chapter 2, again, it's the only account in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, where we see Jesus as a teenager, as a young man. And biblical scholars believe that the reason Luke is the only one that has this account in Scripture is because Matthew, Mark, and John, they spent their time listening to the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, those who knew Jesus from his ministry from about age 30 to 33. But Luke, he says in the beginning of his gospel that he went on a very careful and research-based study to find out all the details of Jesus from the very beginning to the very end of his life. He was a historian. He was a doctor. We also know from John's gospel that Mary, Jesus' mother that's in this story, he was, or she was rather adopted, so to speak, by John. Jesus on the cross says, John, take care of my mom. Mary, here is your son. And John, at this time when Luke was written, he was a pastor in the city of Ephesus, so very likely... Mary was at John's house. Luke comes to find her, sits down across a table, pen in hand, and says, tell me about the beginning. So Luke, writing furiously, carefully, Mary going back in her mind. Now she's an elderly woman. She remembers this story. And she, as she talks to Luke, she remembers the beginning, how an angel appeared to her and gave this incredible news that she was going to be the chosen one, the the mother of God herself. And she then recalls the story of how Joseph didn't believe that an angel visited her, and Joseph was going to just kind of sweep this scandal under the rug, was going to divorce her quietly, but then an angel appeared to him. He changes his mind. He listens. They go get married. And you can imagine perhaps Mary smiling, maybe even laughing, as she recalls the first time she sees Elizabeth, her cousin, And how John, in Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy when Mary walks in and he hears Mary's voice by the Holy Spirit. And she continues and she says, tells him about the story of going to Bethlehem, how it came to be. There was a census by Caesar Augustus and she remembers, oh, it was during the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I remember that. And how when they get to Bethlehem, the well-known story, there was no room in the inn. Unfortunately, there was some open space. We call it a stable, but it would have been underneath the first floor of the house where the animals slept. And she recalls with fondness as she remembers wrapping Jesus in those swaddling claws, lying him in a manger. And I would imagine after a first century birth, she just wanted to sit back and relax, but there's a knock at the door. And it's these kind of wild shepherds and they got their crazy eyes and they're looking at Mary and Joseph and they're saying, is this where the Christ child is? And of course they would have asked, well, how did you know about this? And they retell the story, how angels shone in the heavens and appeared to them and they couldn't come, they couldn't help but come and worship at the Christ child's feet. And Mary tells and Luke writes, but then the story dries up. We have two more accounts. Mary tells Luke about Jesus being consecrated at the temple, being circumcised, and in silence. There's no other stories, not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, nothing except this story that we have here in front of us, Luke chapter 2, verse 41, 
And the question is why? Why did Mary remember this story? What is so significant about it? And two things that I see, two focus points for us today, points of application. Number one, we will look at what is Jesus telling us, showing us about his identity, who he really is. And then once we grasp that by faith, then we can look at his character. How might we, facing another uncertain year, 2022, we have no idea what the year is going to hold before us or in front of us. How could we grow to be a little bit more like Jesus, just a little bit? And a little bit less like ourselves. That's going to be our focus for today. But first, let's focus in on his identity. And right away, if you have your Bible open, you will notice that Jesus comes from a very human family doing a very human thing. They're on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And I like to imagine, it doesn't say this, but, but can you imagine Jesus as a teenager? walking along the road with his family, extended family. I would imagine if he's like my son, he's picking up a stick and he's fashioned it into a sword and he's having a fake sword fight with his cousins, with his brothers. If he's picking up a rock, trying to chuck it at a squirrel. I mean, not in a sinful way, of course, it's Jesus. <laughs> he's doing what boys are doing. And then we see that they celebrate the Passover. They have the big festival and the family takes up to leave. And, you know, this time of year when we're saying goodbye to our family and friends as they come and travel, or maybe you just got back from someplace, you know, that sadness that sets in. You don't know the next time you're going to see them and you're missing the celebration. For Jewish people, the Passover what is what Christmas is for us as Christians. It's a, it's a fun, celebratory time when you get to be with family and friends. And you can imagine them leaving and maybe getting one last glimpse of the temple as they go about their way. It's first and foremost Jesus being a human being doing very human things. But as we quickly see, this is not just an ordinary boy. We follow along, and in verse 47, we learn that people saw him speaking and listening and hearing from the teachers in the temple. They were amazed at his wisdom. They're amazed that he knew all these things. How could a 12-year-old boy possibly know this much? How is he so respectful, just sitting there, listening and asking good questions? But then he says this uh, very crazy thing in verse 49. His parents find him. He makes a very bold claim. He says to his parents, why were you looking for me? For did you not know that I must be in my father's house? His father's house. Now it's interesting to me that Mary and Joseph are just as confused as uh, other people. They, they seem to have a momentarily lap of, or lack of faith here. They didn't understand what he was saying. It's like Mary has forgotten about the vision from the angel, how he's, she's forgotten about the promise and the prophecy from Simeon and Anna earlier on in that chapter. It's like they've forgotten that Jesus is not just their son, but he's also the Savior. But look at this claim. This is where we have to kind of reckon with the fact that Jesus is claiming here for the very first time that he's not just a human, he's actually the son of God and he's in his father's house. It means that Jesus is both 100% human and he's 100% divine. He's 100% God. We can only come to that conclusion by faith and faith alone that this is God's son sent for us, not just a son, but also a savior. So maybe you're here today and you've been a Christian your entire life. 
and you know this and you believe this, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you're not sure what you believe, this is the foundational truth of Christianity, this claim that is being made here in Scripture, and it's one of the reasons why it comes to Mary's memory, because she admits to us herself that she had struggled with that, that she had lost sight of that. That's the first thing. What do you believe about Jesus? But once we come to that conclusion, again by faith, once we rest in the fact that God in the flesh here is in Jesus, then we can look to him and learn from him. If this is truly God's son, then of course we want to pay attention to his life, to his character. What's he trying to show us? Well, the first thing I see here is the incredible humility of Jesus. Now imagine this. This is the son of God. This is Christ in the flesh, God in the flesh, and he not only submits himself to his parents, it says that after this, his, um, he increased in wisdom, he went back to Nazareth and was submissive to them, human earthly parents. It would have meant in those days, Joseph being the spiritual head of the family, he would have taught Jesus the Torah, they would have memorized it together, he would have helped with some of the festivals, like the Day of Atonement, like the Passover, he would have participated in that as the oldest male in the family, but he would have but we see here he submitted himself to a human being's, his basically step-parent, foster-parent guardian. We also see his humility, though, in his interaction with the teachers. These are uh, Israel's brightest and best scholars, the ones who resided in the temple. You went there for all of your spiritual questions, all of your spiritual problems. These were the men who were supposed to be the experts in the law. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's sitting at their feet. It says that in verse 46, he was listening to them and he was asking them questions. This is a great act of humility. It's a posture that Jesus puts himself in despite having greater knowledge, despite knowing more than they could ever possibly imagine. He demonstrates to us, shows us what it looks like to be humble and to sit back and to learn from other people, which brings us to our point of application. How do y'all do with that? How do y'all do with humility? Can you put yourself at somebody else's feet and allow them to correct you, to rebuke you if necessary, to point out character flaws? Can you look at your spouse and put them first and put you second? If you're a young person in here today, can you look at your parents and allow them to pour into your life or do you butt against them Really what we see here, or what that is called, is when pride takes over, there's less humility, there's more pride. And I'll tell you a story. As I was thinking about this, I was instantly drawn back to the very first year of ministry as a church worker, 21 years old, just graduated from Concordia University, Seward, Nebraska, and I had a degree on the wall to prove how wise and how smart and how amazing I was as a youth minister. And I'm called to a church, and we start doing ministry together. There was a team member on that staff, though, that I butted heads with. We had some conflict because they had some different ideas for youth ministry than I had, and he wanted to do this, and I wanted to do that, but because I was the called worker, and again, so wise and so smart, of course, I was right, and this person was wrong. Can I get an amen? Courtney Limmer, our director of student ministries. <laughs> but then by God's grace, and his grace alone, beating me over the head, like sometimes us stubborn people need, slowly I began to listen to this person on our team, and I began to try out some of those ideas, and lo and behold, I know this is shocking, it actually worked. 
And then we got together and we had some more conversations and we implemented some more of his ideas. And wouldn't you know, it began to work and pretty soon our ministry began to grow and pretty soon our relationships began to grow deeper. And in fact, for about 15 years after that, I modeled my ministry on what I learned from this man, this team member, who I was too stubborn and too prideful to humble myself and to learn from. Because it is so easy for us, isn't it, in this culture to, to puff ourselves up, to be prideful and to think that we know it all. And I would argue here today that probably every conflict that you have, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's a friend, whether it's a coworker, or perhaps if you're discontent with your job, with your work, with your lot in life, chances are, if you would draw a little map, you would come back to the point that there is at the root of all these things some sort of lack of humility where pride has crept in. It reminds me of Proverbs 11:2, and maybe Jesus had this memorized. It says that when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble comes wisdom. Do you, in 2022, want to be wiser this year than you were last year? If the answer is yes, if you set for yourself New Year's resolutions, I don't, by the way, set New Year's resolutions because I never keep them. So I have not resolved to not set New Year's resolutions because it just makes me feel bad. But I do set goals. And one of my goals this year is to look at one of our missions or our strategies here to live God's mission. I want to think more deeply on this. What does it look like for us as a congregation to live God's mission? How can we improve our missional communities? How can we get more people in what we call a huddle? It's a discipleship group. How can we help more people be involved in the mission of God? In order to do that, I have to sit at Jesus' feet. I have to humble myself and admit that I don't have all the answers. But that's the beginning, if Scripture is correct, and I think it is, that's the beginning. Humility is the beginning of wisdom. Where do you need wisdom this year? submit to you, you can look no further than right here. Which begs us the last question here today, how do we gain it? How do we gain wisdom? How do we gain humility? It's not like you can just go to a store and say, "Ah, I'd like a little bit of humility today, a little bit of wisdom, tack on some grace and some tact. That's not how it works. I wish it was that easy. We can look no further than, again, one more thing of Jesus. We see him as this young man. Notice where he is when his parents find him, the temple. He says that, or the text tells us he was in his father's house. And we can learn from that. What that means for us is Jesus is modeling for us first humility, then where wisdom comes from, and he's showing us that the place to get it is right here where you are seated. The place to get it is right here, is this altar area where just in a few minutes you're going to receive the best gift you can get this entire year, the grace of God, the presence of God, his promise in your life that despite your sin, no matter what you have done, you and God are good. He loves you. He does all the heavy lifting. All he asks us to do is get in a car, hire an Uber, ask a friend for a ride to come here and be here in God's house. That's the beginning of wisdom is to worship together. And the second place that it's offered for free and it's right here in your hands. We've got probably more Bibles in history than any other time in history. You can put it on your phone. You can actually get text messages to your watch. You have access to it 24 7 a days in this book god wants to speak to you his words for your daily bread he wants to give you impart to you a wisdom that's outside of yourself so you might grow in grace 
and knowledge and truth so that you can face 2022 despite all the uncertainty knowing no matter what that you're not doing this alone. If God should take your family from you, if God should take your job from you, if God should take your very life, you will know, you will have the confidence to know that God is with you, that he loves you, that he treasures you, and he can speak into your heart this wisdom that comes from humility. If you're lacking that, I want to invite you to look no further than his words to you, than this place, this congregation, this temple where he shows up in the form of bread and wine, in the form of friends, I mean, you may not know everybody in this room, but you are brothers and sisters in Christ. Those watching from home, we can't wait for you to come back and be a part of this community here at Our Father. You are missed and you are loved because you are part of God's family. And as we close, let's just do one more thing. We've got one more good example here. Look with me at verse 51. You know, it says that Mary didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying. She seems to be confused. You know, why is Jesus saying he has to be in his father's house? Then you can imagine her telling this. Luke is writing it down, and she remembers. She goes, oh, wait, I remember. I remember what the angel promised. I remember what Simeon and Anna, the prophet and prophetess, promised. And she begins to have this warm smile come across her face. It says, because she treasured up all these things in her heart. See, the words of Jesus, her son, but also her savior, had so penetrated her heart that she could not forget them. It was like the greatest treasure she had ever found penetrating her heart, reminding her that he wasn't just a son, he was her savior. Could we... Be like Jesus, ask for greater humility, have greater wisdom, but can we also be like Mary today as we walk out of this place? Treasure these words that Jesus has for you, words of comfort and joy and peace and grace. Let us treasure them in our own hearts. Amen? Amen.